chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And follow our brother Paul a little further. Amen. What city was he in last Sunday night? Athens. And we left him there after he had spoken in Areopagus, which was the high court of the city of Athens before the philosophers on Mars Hill. Same place, Areopagus or Mars Hill, where the court would assemble. Acts chapter 18. Let me read the first three verses. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. We are following our brother Paul as he brings the gospel from the intellectual capital of the world. Paul is leaving the intellectual capital of the world and bringing the gospel down to the sin capital of the world. He's going to visit a, a, an ancient San Francisco where there, was no, where there were no laws, no morality, great lasciviousness and licentiousness in this city of Corinth. If you were to look at your maps, you would see that it's on a very advantageous isthmus of Greece, where there were harbors that made it very profitable for that city. And they grew very wealthy, but they were also known for their wickedness. Right. The name of that city was turned into a proverb to mean two different things. You could call someone as being rich as a Corinthian, or you could say that they've been Corinthianized which is to be made very wicked and lascivious without limitations. And as I study Acts 17 and then Acts 18, it's you think of our brother Paul. He's carrying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just met with the most intellectual men in the world, and now he's in the gutters, we would call it, with the Corinthians in the city of Corinth. But while he's there, he finds a Jew that's been kicked out of Rome by Claudius Caesar, who with his wife, Priscilla, are tent makers, and so he stays with them in the city of Corinth. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. And so we have his first experience in Corinth. It wasn't very successful. But it was successful. It just wasn't very successful. It turns into a large church. I want you to notice, again, where did the greatest of evangelists, the greatest of missionaries, as some like to call him. I don't use the word missionary very often because I haven't found it in my Bible yet. Right. So I use the word evangelist. Where did he go? But to the synagogues again. And reasoned with them out of the scriptures there every Sabbath day, Jews and Greek proselytes. Now his two brethren, Silas and Timotheus, 
were in Philippi of Macedonia. And they come and join him here in the city of Corinth. And when he gets some ministerial companions back around him, he's pressed in the spirit. And so there in the synagogue, he reasons and and persuades that Jesus is Christ. But they oppose and they blaspheme. Now this man, who right now is about to say, your blood be on your own heads, I'm clean. And he shakes his garment, and he says, I'm going to the Gentiles. This is the same apostle that wrote us the words, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, wrote ministers the words, that we ought to be gentle, patient, meek, apt to teach, instructing those that oppose themselves. Now what makes the great difference? Because there's a limit on how far we go with anyone. Right. Look at Proverbs chapter 26. Very Holding your fingers in Acts 18, because we don't want to chase too many rabbits this evening, and this really isn't a rabbit, it's the Word of God. Amen. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. There, right there is the Bible rule. You say rule, well, what I really mean is two rules. Right. You're supposed to answer a fool to shut his mouth. But then when you reach a point and you realize he truly is an incorrigible fool, you're not supposed to waste any more time with them. The words of the Savior would be, cast not your pearls before swine. Right. And when those Jews wanted to blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul would not put up with it. He reached a point with them. He was laying out the truth plainly enough, and they wouldn't receive it, that he said, forget it. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm clean. That expression of being clean comes from the book of Ezekiel, where God told his prophets that when I've warned a people that judgment is coming, you are to blow the trumpet of warning. If you blow the trumpet and they don't turn then their judgment and their blood is on their heads. But if you don't blow the trumpet and they don't turn, then their blood will be on your head. So Paul is saying, listen, I've told you, I've shown you from the Scriptures, your blood be on your own head. And he walks out. Now he doesn't have to walk far. He walks out and goes in the next door. Verse 7. And he departed thence, that's out of the synagogue, and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshipped God, that's a Greek proselyte, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. He walks out one door, walks in the next door, because he's just been offered another place where he can keep the discourse going, and that's in the house of Justice. The Lord's merciful to him. He leaves those Jews, and he finds some willing hearers next door. But you know what else happens when Paul walks out? And some of you have done something similar to this. You had to walk out of an assembly one time, and you didn't know if any were going to follow. But many followed. The Apostle Paul walked out of this assembly, and guess who followed? Verse 8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Paul makes a strong statement like that and walks out, and the Lord grants him fruit right there on the spot. 
Justice opens up his house. Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue. Do you know what courage that would have taken to give up your pedigree, your education, your position among the Jews and to follow the Apostle Paul out that door and into the house next door? That's courage. Do we love truth enough to be able to do that? Crispus did it. And I want to tell you, Crispus did it. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he along with Gaius are listed as the very first converts in Corinth that Paul baptized. His name is listed again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This chief ruler of the synagogue is converted by the gospel preached by Paul and his whole house. And let the gospel order be observed in verse 8. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. That is the gospel order. We are in a very small minority. I will remind you again, there be two billion on the earth tonight that call themselves Christians. One billion of them being Roman Catholics. Several hundred million of them being Orthodox, Greek, and Russian others being Protestant whore daughters of Rome, and the Baptist number maybe 50 million. Nominal Baptists. But still, that's only 2.5% out of the 2 billion calling themselves Christians. We follow the gospel order. And what is the gospel order? You hear, you believe, you're baptized. What's their order? You're baptized, and eventually you hear, and maybe you'll believe. Isn't that pitiful? It's a total corruption of the Word of God. Jesus sent His disciples out to go into all the world, His apostles, teaching them, preaching the gospel to them, baptizing converts, and then teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. They hear, they believe, they're baptized. Let the gospel order be understood. Don't ever back down from it. Amen. Many of the martyrs gave their lives because they held to the gospel order that's right there in Acts chapter 18 and verse 8. Many believed of the Corinthians after hearing and were baptized. He's in the house of justice. He's been thrown out of the synagogue. He's He's chosen to leave it because of the way they treated him. But here's the Lord comes to him and comforts him. Then spake the Lord to Paul, in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. The Lord is comforting. Did Paul get abused in the city of Philippi not too long ago? I mean, it was only a short time that he was in Philippi because Silas and Timotheus were there, and he'd already given them orders to come as quickly as they could, so they just arrived. So he hadn't been long in Athens at all. And now here he is in Corinth, and he's getting a rude treatment by the Jews. But the Lord appears to him and says, Don't hold your peace. You preach what I've given you to preach. I'm with you. No man is going to hurt you. I have much people in this city. Do we understand those words, I have much people in this city? Let all Arminians choke on the words of Acts chapter 18 and verse 10. According to their theology, he has everyone, so the words are meaningless. 
God loved them all equally. Jesus Christ died for them all the same. And the Holy Spirit is trying as desperately with all of them to win them to salvation. But the Lord has his chosen people. And he had many of them in Corinth. And he sent the apostle Paul there. And he said, I've got a lot of people here. Remember, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed in Antioch of Pisidia. And so it was in Corinth. Paul was going to stay there. And he did. Because it tells us in verse 11, he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, which is the work of a gospel minister. It's to teach. He taught them the Old Testament scriptures on moral conduct and how they were supposed to live to please God and the fulfillment of all the prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come to verse 12. He's in the city of Corinth. He's been there a while. In that period of time of 18 months, this event happens that's captured in verses 12 through 17. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, Achaia is the province, Corinth is the capital. South Carolina is the state. Columbia is the capital. Achaia is the province or the state, and Corinth is the capital. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, now when Paul was about to open his mouth, you are supposed to remember something. The Jews of one accord, all get together and create a riot against the Apostle Paul and drag him to the deputy sent by Rome to govern this province of Achaia. You're supposed to remember something. God has appeared to Paul in a vision and said, what did he say? Be not afraid. I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. Do you believe that promise? When the Lord promises something to you, do you believe it? Like, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee? Do you believe it? Now listen to that. Come on. Do you know what Paul's thinking? The last time I, the last time a riot was in the streets and drug him down the streets, what happened to him? He had all his clothes torn off and he was beaten with many stripes and thrown into the inner prison in Philippi just a few weeks earlier. But the Lord told our brother, I am with thee, no man is going to hurt thee. Wow. And he's before Gallio. And the Jews have created a riot. And all it, you know, it's just one man. A whole riot can be ended if Gallio will just do something to this one man. Easy. In a city like Corinth, notice what happens. I love the humor of the Lord. Watch Gallio. The deputy from Rome. The What were the Romans known for? Discipline. Discipline. Watch this disciplinarian from Rome because the Lord turns the hearts of kings and deputies. Verse 14, And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. 
and he drave them from the judgment seat. He turned on the Jews for bothering him with something of their own law and their words and names and their own problems. And he did it so emphatically that the Greeks that were standing around that judgment seat took a cue from him and they took the chief ruler of the synagogue who would have been the chief accuser of Paul and beat him in front of the judgment seat and Gallio watched. Let's read in verse 17. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Gallio cared for none of those things. Brethren, do you know what just happened? Do you understand the Lord being with you? When the Lord's with you, the Apostle Paul is being dragged by an angry mob in front of the judgment seat. And heavy accusations are laid against him. And the man in the judgment seat gets irritated with the mob for bringing Paul. And he makes it so emphatic that everyone else that's standing around that judgment seat gives the same punishment to the chief accuser that they thought to give against Paul. And they beat Sosthenes. Is that glorious? Was the Lord with Paul? Did the Lord keep his promise? No man, according to the 10th verse, I am with thee and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. He's just been beaten and put in prison. The Lord's going to let him have time to heal before he does it to him again. Remember, Jesus had promised Paul, you're going to have to suffer great things for me. But even the Lord's merciful sometimes and was going to let Paul heal. Do you know how many times that poor man was beaten? Go to 2 Corinthians 11 sometime and start reading through his resume. It sounds a little different than yours. But the Lord's merciful to him here. Isn't that... I love that. Amen. I love that. I've always wondered about that Gallio letting, letting discipline go so far, uh, run, uh, run out the door. He's got a mob on his hands, and he just sits there as they beat a man. How did that happen? Amen. Romans were disciplinarians. Right. The Lord did it because he protected Paul. Now, do you think the Jews were going to hasten back in there the next day with someone else from the Corinthian church? (laughs) Can you laugh with the Lord? Yes. It's going to be a while before the Jews go back in before this deputy accusing one of the Christians of matters pertaining to law and their law and religion. The Lord Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Gallio cared for none of those things. He just watched and didn't bother him a bit that Sosthenes was being beaten instead of Paul. Verse 18. And Paul after this tarried there yet a good while and then took his leave of the brethren. No man set on him to hurt him and sailed thence into Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila having shorn his head in Sencria for he had a vow. Paul leaves Corinth. He's been there 18 months. And now he leaves and he takes these tent makers with him. And if I was to show you the scriptures and the rest of the New Testament, they were useful people to Paul. Hardworking and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll find in various, in a couple of places that they have a church in their house. That'd be a pretty small church, but they kept one in their house. They were faithful brethren and helped the Apostle Paul. But he takes them with him as he leaves the city of Corinth, and he sails toward Syria. 
Now, where's Syria? If you can remember your map, or if you have your map, Syria is where he's from. Antioch of Syria. So he's going back home. So he's heading back across the Mediterranean Sea from Greece toward what we call Palestine. But before he goes there, the ship makes a stop in a city called Ephesus. And he's only there a little while. He's got a vow on him because he's going back to Jerusalem. He's going to tell us in verse 21 that he's heading to Jerusalem in order to keep a feast. And so he's taken on him a Jewish vow so that when he gets to Jerusalem, he'll fit in with all the Jews that are there in that city when he goes up to salute the church of Jerusalem. But he stops in Ephesus. The three of them stop in Ephesus. Verse 19. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. That is Aquila and Priscilla. And you're going to see the Lord's providence in this chapter because we need someone in Ephesus that understands the way of the Lord Amen. more perfectly. Amen. Yep. It's, it's so good. We need them there. And the Lord gets them there. If any man seeks the Lord with his whole heart, let me interject this personal note. A couple of weeks ago, having the young people sitting in my den for a Bible study on a Saturday evening, I found out that Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen was the favorite verse of several of them, which says that if you'll seek me with your, all your heart, you'll find me. Right. Apollos loved the Lord, and he's about to find the Lord more perfectly. Amen. But he needs a couple people, and Aquila and Priscilla are going to get the job done. But let's go back to verse 19. He came to Ephesus, that's the Apostle Paul, and left them, that's Aquila and Priscilla, there. But while he was there in Ephesus, he entered himself into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. They're always reasoning, isn't he? What is preaching? It's not entertaining. It's not flattering. It's reasoning. It's taking verses of Scripture and applying them together in argumentation in order to persuade men to live a certain way and to believe certain things. He's always, haven't we run across that word several times? Amen. Don't we find it back in verse 4? Right. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Proper preaching is reasoning and persuading. It's not accommodating or compromising because it's persuading. It's forcing you to move your position to his position. Right. And it's getting you there not by flattery or entertainment, but by reasoning. Do you follow that? Amen. Very different from our world today. Our world today is to win them by entertainment and flattery, and to be as accommodating and as compromising as possible so that you can open your wide, your arms as wide as possible to allow almost anything called conversion. Right. But the Word of God is persuasion toward the straight and narrow way. Amen. And it's based on reasoning, not entertaining and flattery. Never forget what ought to come out of a pulpit. It's reasoning in the Scriptures with persuasion for you to change. Verse 19, he does it in Ephesus. He meets some Jews and he reasons with them in the synagogue and when they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not because he's under pressure to get back to the church in Jerusalem. So verse 21, he bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. 
I want you to notice that. Does the Apostle Paul acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord of his life, of his choices, of his plans, of his promises? He's promising these Ephesians, I'll be back, and he does come back. Next chapter, he'll be back for over two years in the city of Ephesus. But he always submits all of his plans, all of his promises, all of his intentions to the will of God. Because nothing has ever been done in the history of this world or universe that was not according to the will of God. And that is his decorative secret will, which we do not know until it is fulfilled. But we always are to submit everything to that will. That's why in James chapter 4 and verse 15, we read the words, if we're going to do something, anything, this or that, it doesn't matter what it is, we're always supposed to say, we're going to do this or that if the Lord will. Because it's only going to happen if the Lord wills for it to happen. You can set all the plans you want to go someplace, but if it's not the Lord's will for you to get there, there's all sorts of things that can happen to your automobile, telephone calls that can arrive in your house to keep you from going. It's always the will of the Lord. And Paul uses that expression often in his epistles. If God will, you Ephesians, I'll see you again. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now he sailed across the Mediterranean Sea to Syria. And he arrived at the port of Caesarea. Verse 22. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up. Now some you might look at that and look at a map and see that directly north of Caesarea is Antioch, his home church. And think that he went up to his home church in Antioch. But he didn't. He went up in altitude from a coastal town up into the mountains of Judea, Mount Zion, which was a city called Jerusalem. Verse 22, he's ending evangelistic trip number two. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up to Jerusalem and saluted the church, we know this from verse 21, which says, I must by all means make this feast in Jerusalem. He went down to Antioch. And again, I'll point out to you that if you look at a map, Antioch is directly north of Jerusalem. So how did he go down to it? Because Antioch was near the coast also, if you look at your map. So he went down in altitude from Jerusalem to Antioch. You say, you've been mentioning that altitude stuff a lot in the book of Acts. That's correct. Because if you miss it sometimes, you're going to end up with Paul going in the wrong direction. Right. And you'll be confused. He was going to go to Jerusalem, and he did. And he saluted the church there, a Jewish church predominantly. He had a vow on him. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 20 tells us that the Apostle Paul would look like a Jew to the Jews in order to win the Jews. And so he did. And then he goes on down from the elevation of Jerusalem to that of Antioch of Syria, his home church. He went down to Antioch, the last words of verse 22. And after he had spent some time there, he departed. So he spent some time with his home church. He would have told them all about trip number two. He'd have told them about a jailer in Philippi with his whole family. He'd have told them about the chief ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. He would have told them about meeting the philosophers and speaking before Areopagus in the city of Athens. He'd have told that home church that, and they would all rejoiced, 
just like they did in chapter 14, hearing all about his first evangelistic trip. But here in the middle of this verse 23, we have Paul ending a trip and giving an account of it and starting his third. Did Paul labor more abundantly than they all? Amen. Wasn't that enough? What happens in the military if a man gets wounded? He gets to come home. The Apostle Paul's been wounded several times now. What does he do? He takes enough time with his home church to tell them what's been happening and about the churches for them to be able to pray for him, and he takes off again. In verse 23, And after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Paul was a systematic man. And here he systematically goes back and visits all the churches in Galatia again. If you look at your maps, you'll see that Galatia and Phrygia is that territory north and east of Asia Minor where he had established churches on his first trip. And now this is the third time he's visiting them, strengthening them. And he did it in order, systematically, in an organized fashion to make sure he got to each church and strengthen the disciples. Are you glad that God makes some men with zeal? Amen. And he called one of those men who had been faithful as a persecutor of Christians and just turned that zealot about a hundred, about 90 degrees in order for him to call on the name of Jesus Christ and go serve Christ. And he just kept on going. When he got to the end of his life, I have fought a good fight. He had fought a good fight. Brethren, We need to be zealous, like the Apostle Paul, in order for us to have the same testimony when we come to the end of our lives. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. We're leaving Paul. He's there in Galatia and Phrygia, visiting all the churches. Now on trip number two, could he go into Asia? Do you remember trip two? He tried to go south into Asia. Lord said no. He tried to go north. Lord said no. He had one direction left, and that was to keep heading west, which he did and ended up in Macedonia, which we call Greece. But what city is in Asia? Ephesus is in Asia Minor. And so Paul is making his way through all those churches, and he's coming down to Ephesus, which is where we'll find him in the first verse of Acts chapter 19, the next time we look in this book. But right now we have a little parenthetical description of another event that took place back in Ephesus while Paul was heading to Jerusalem, then to Antioch, and then through Galatia. He left a couple, a couple in Ephesus, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Here's the man Apollos. He was a Jew, so he already knew the Old Testament scriptures. He was born at Alexandria, second only to Athens as the learning center of the world, the greatest library in the world, a center of literature and philosophy and religion. The Jews were very numerous there. He comes from a very educated and intellectual and learned city, and he's a Jew. It tells us that about him. It says he's an eloquent man. He was very gifted in speech. He could reason and persuade verbally 
and move men by his speech, very gifted in speaking. And he was mighty in the scriptures. He knew how to use the Old Testament. That's all he had. But he was mighty. He knew them, and he could use them. And he could argue with them, and reason with them, and persuade with them. He was mighty in the scriptures. He needed to be mighty. Did Paul need to be mighty in the scriptures? Think with me for a minute. Hold on. Was Paul mighty, or did God give him a gift? He was mighty by a gift, a Holy Spirit-given gift of prophecy and of wisdom and of faith and of knowledge. This man was mighty in the Scriptures. He isn't an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a disciple of another man, John the Baptist. He's a Baptist evangelist, and he hasn't heard about Pentecost, and he doesn't understand everything yet. Let's just follow the man and see what the Bible tells us about him. This mighty, this man, eloquent and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. He knew the gospel. He had been taught it by John that Jesus was coming. And he knew about Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah. Because remember, John the Baptist taught that. John had only started baptizing a while and preaching before Jesus was there at one of his baptisms, and he announced him as the Messiah to all of Israel. Up to that point, he had said, There cometh a man after me who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I'll baptize you with water but he'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That was the message of John the Baptist. He had pointed out Christ in advance. Then Jesus arrived and was announced by John's baptism and the Spirit descending on Jesus Christ from heaven. And then from that point on, everyone knew who the Messiah was that was a sincere believer at all. And Apollos was sincere. But brethren, something great happened three and a half years after that, and that was the day of Pentecost. Why is it called the sun shall stop shining and the moon will be turned into darkness and blood and fire and vapor of smoke? Why why is that type of language used in Acts chapter 2 but to describe a great change that took place on the day of Pentecost? Jesus Christ was announced at God's right hand as Lord and Christ. And no longer was baptism to be the baptism of repentance. It was baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Two things this man didn't know about. Other than those two things, we are not going to make him ignorant at all. Because by reading the rest of this chapter in the first seven verses of the next chapter, he was ignorant of those two things. It said that he was taught and instructed in the way of the Lord. He knew that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not capital L-O-R-D of the Old Testament. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew that John the Baptist had simply been announcing him. And here he is, traveling around, preaching. And he comes to Ephesus, and he goes right into the synagogue. And he's mighty in the Scriptures, and he's up there trying to persuade them that Jesus is Christ. But he knows only the baptism of John. 
He was fervent. In the, let's, let's continue to look at his accomplishments and gifts from the Lord. He was being fervent in the Spirit. You know, we're all told to be that way. Romans chapter 12 and verse 11. Fervent in spirit. We should all be passionate about our religion. Passionate in our spirits. God has called us to be that. It is good to be zealously affected in a good thing. And that's the way we should be. If the Lord Jesus Christ means anything to us, we should be passionate about Him and fervent and zealous. And this man was. And he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. He taught about Jesus Christ. His miracles, his words, his promises, his prophecies, but he only knew the baptism of John. Now, we're in a period of transition. Never, ever, ever forget, there is, there is a Reformation in history, and it's not the one by which the Roman Catholic Church became the mother church. That is, she had a lot of little daughters called the little daughter harlots of Rome. That's not the Reformation that we care about Amen. in 15 and 1600. We are not Protestants because we've never protested and come out of that church. The Baptists have been traced outside that institution all the way back to John the Baptist and the Apostles. Right. But we have a Reformation. It's Hebrews 9.10. I've taught it to you often, but in the book of Acts, you better remember it. Because guess when Acts was, what the time period Acts covers? The very 40 years of the time of Reformation. Right. Who baptized the apostles? Did Jesus baptize anyone? No. Who baptized the apostles? John the Baptist. Did they have to be rebaptized? Absolutely not. Was John the Baptist's baptism acceptable? Amen. Yes. Until when? The day of Pentecost. Then any baptisms done simply in the baptism of repentance, which John the ba- John didn't baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. Right. John baptized the baptism of repentance. And until it, it was valid. Uh, remember, the disciples were competing. Do you remember the verses in the scriptures? And I'm trying to save time. Where the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John were competing as to how many they had baptized. Right. They were both baptizing at the same time contemporary with each other, because they were both valid. They were baptizing a baptism of repentance. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent! When was the first baptism in the name of Jesus Christ? Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Jesus Christ is now at the right hand of God, and He's poured out the Holy Ghost, and things are being turned upside down. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost that had never been taught before. That was brand new. Acts 2.38. That Acts chapter 2 is a staggering chapter. The first time tongues, the Holy Spirit had been poured out like that. The church was turned upside down. It was very different than before. Those people were baptized and they immediately came together in a gospel church in a specific location. No longer did you baptize a baptism of repentance, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now you baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus. You look at every baptism after Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and it's a baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. Baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. Over and over and over again. And if it's not done by a great enough authority 
for the gift of the Holy Ghost to accompany it, apostles come out of Jerusalem to lay hands on those brethren so that the Holy Ghost is given. Acts chapter 8. Remember, Philip went down to Samaria and he baptized them. And the, John and Peter came down and laid hands on them and they received the gift of the Holy Ghost. We're in a time of reformation. There's a transition going on here. Anyone baptized after Pentecost by a disciple of John with John's baptism was invalidly baptized. We're going to run into them in the next chapter. Anyone baptized before Pentecost, it was fine. The apostles had that baptism. But after the pouring out of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, to be baptized in that foretelling baptism of repentance was now no longer valid. Jesus was Christ and Lord, and baptism was to be done in His name, and the gift of the Holy Ghost came with it. Amen. John knew only the baptism... Apollos knew only the baptism of John. Here's a Baptist evangelist. Right. We don't know what he did. The Bible doesn't tell us. I love to speculate, but I don't want to take your time with my speculum, maybe just a little bit. We don't know when John baptized him and where he went. He may have spent the last 20 years in Alexandria. And Ephesus was a rich city. He's traveling from one rich city of Alexandria to another rich city of Ephesus. But wherever he went, maybe Apollos, because he was eloquent and mighty in the scriptures, would go to synagogues and point out, don't you people know that the Messiah has come? Well, there were two in the audience that day when Apollos went into the synagogue in Ephesus, verse 26, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Boldly. Do you love this man? Amen. He's fervent in the spirit. He's eloquent. He's mighty in the scriptures. And there he is in the synagogue at Ephesus speaking boldly. And what kind of things did he speak? He spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. Jesus Christ. But he hadn't been baptized in the name of the Lord. He, he, had a, he had a proper baptism, but his disciples that he was converting were not being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ yet, and they were not being taught, nor had they received the gift of the Holy Ghost. We're going to run into some of them in the next chapter. But there's two people in the audience, Aquila and Priscilla. They've spent 18 months with the Apostle Paul. Do you think they know about Pentecost? Amen. Do you think they know about the pouring out of the Holy Ghost? Do you think they know about baptisms in the name of the Lord Jesus? Whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. What was that more perfection? It was baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is now the way we do it since the day of Pentecost. Jesus Christ has empowered his apostles They're the foundation of the church, and he's poured out his Holy Ghost on the churches and upon his ministers. And so they teach him that. It doesn't tell us anymore. Brethren, all it says is he knows he was instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. And those things were the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew all about Jesus Christ, but the day of Pentecost and the great changes that took place there, which separated all the disciples of Christ from the from the baptism of John. It was the great. It's a great line in church history of what took place on the day of Pentecost.
It was over. Now all baptisms take place in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because in the first seven verses of Acts chapter 19, we're going to find some that were converted by Apollos and were baptized under John's baptism. And that's all they knew. They didn't even know anything about the Holy Ghost. And the Apostle Paul is going to remedy it when he gets to Ephesus. Verse 27, And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, what city do you think he was going to? What's the capital of Achaia? Corinth. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, that is, brethren there at Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla were not wasting their time, Brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. Remember, they would have never heard about a man named Apollos. Paul had been there in Corinth for a year and a half, but he hadn't told them about a fellow laborer named Apollos because Paul didn't know about this man yet. Aquila and Priscilla convert him. He's eloquent. He's mighty in the scriptures. All he needs is a little fine-tuning. But I want to tell you something, brethren. We have some points about evangelism here. Fine-tuning is important. It's not enough to teach and speak diligently the things of the Lord if you're missing a few. You need them all. And I hope that you pray for this church and for your pastor that we miss nothing in the counsel of God, but we get it all. Everything that he wants us to have. Or he can leave us for 20 years like Apollos, not knowing what took place on the day of Pentecost. That'd be horrible. I'll bet it was an exciting evening, though, around the table with Aquila and Priscilla. Because you get a man fervent in the spirit, and you have someone showing him the way of God more perfectly. I'll bet he was ready to blow a gasket. Amen. When he was disposed to go, they gave him a letter of commendation. And he was so effective when he got to Corinth. When you go to the book of Corinthians and read the first chapter, the third chapter, the fourth chapter, you will find out that there were factions in that church, and there was a very loyal segment to Apollos, because he was an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures. And when he had the way of God explained to him more perfectly, he went into that city and he preached boldly and powerfully. And it says there in the last part of verse 27, he helped them much which had believed through grace. And then explains how he helped those believers in Corinth because he was their champion against the Jews. For he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Who had given up earlier in that city of Corinth? Paul. Who did the Lord send to be their champion in Paul's absence? He sent Apollos who was mighty in the scriptures and eloquent, and he was able publicly to handle all those Jews, proving that Jesus was Christ, and to do it in a public way and defend those Christians in Corinth. The Lord usually called fishermen. Once in a while, he calls an Apollos. And it's, it's a pleasure to read the word of God and to see a man who for 20 years knew only the baptism of John, didn't know about the Holy Ghost, didn't know about baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. But then he has the way of God explained to him more perfectly. And those poor brethren that had invalid baptisms, in the first seven verses of Acts chapter 19, we're going to be taught the lesson that our forefathers in the faith for the last 2,000 years have laid down their lives for, that when a baptism is invalid, it is to be redone. And thus they've been called Anabaptists for 2,000 years. 
because a sprinkling by any church, no matter how powerful, how rich, or of how long standing, is no baptism at all. And if it was done to, if, if an infant was immersed, because he was not a believer and had not followed gospel order, it was no baptism at all, Amen. so they would redo it. And for 2,000 years, they've been called Anna, re, repeating Baptists, Anabaptists, repeating baptizers, rebaptizers. Because in Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul is going to find some of these disciples that have never heard about the Holy Ghost and have been baptized to John's baptism after the day of Pentecost, and they're going to be rebaptized. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. I hope that you can take comfort from the fact that the Lord was with Paul in that city of Corinth. And when the Lord says that He's with you, and no man can hurt you, there's reason to take courage. And you know what? He has said to all of us, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. And then I hope that you appreciate how the Lord did protect him, deliver him, and providentially used a man and his wife being kicked out of the city of Rome. Oh, they must have thought that the Lord was not smiling upon them. But they land in Corinth, and a man named Paul lives with them for 18 months. Is that a blessing? And then that husband and wife couple are able to convert a man named Apollos, who was mighty and was able to convince the Jews that Jesus was Christ. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Stand with me.